Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Hope you're enjoying your holiday break. Hopefully you're getting a holiday break here between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, We are in the fourth installment of our six editions of our Three Martini Lunch Awards for the year 2020. The first three installments are in the books. If you haven't had a chance to listen to those, I highly encourage you to go back as we uh, took a look at the most overrated, underrated, and honest political figures. Uh, Some of the figures we're most sorry to see go in 2020, and unfortunately the list is quite long. Rising stars, uh, people fading into oblivion, and then we looked at worst scandal yesterday along with best and worst political theater. Today we're going to be looking at best idea, worst idea, and boldest political tactic. And so, Jim, a lot of uh, possible candidates here as well. What was the best idea of 2020? You know, Greg, you say there's a lot of options. I, I, to me, there was one head and shoulders above them, and it's one of those, this is one of the days I'm glad I go first, because <laughs> uh, I figure you might have picked the same one. Operation Warp Speed. Um, at this moment, we are, uh, there is light at the end of the tunnel of this miserable year, which was driven in large part by a pandemic, uh, cost hundreds of thousands of American lives. It made uh, some people are, are you know still recovering and still having lingering issues. Uh, untold economic damage. People's lives have been ruined. A generally depressing, miserable year. We're getting out of it because of Operation Warp Speed, and it is a testament to the uh, just the ingenious and the innovation of you know uh, U.S. doctors, but also Oxford University doctors all around the world. This has been a, you know, thoroughly depressing year. And the thing that probably should have, you know, kept us going, and I hope it was able to keep people going, was knowing not just that better days were coming, but that you had more good people, more smart people, throwing all of their brain power at this problem than any other problem in in world history. And lo and behold, we developed a vaccine in faster than anything else in world history. Most people point out that, you know, the, the previous record had been about four years uh, I believe it was mumps was was the uh, the vaccine where they went from isolating the virus to being able to uh, put shots in people's arms. Look, this did not happen by itself. Uh, and for all the problems the Trump administration had, for all the problems the uh, federal government had, FDA early tests not working and, and things like that, um, Operation Warp Speed basically saying to pharmaceutical companies, start making them. Start making them, start manufacturing them, start making the vials, start making the, the, uh, the assembly lines you're going to need to make more of it. We will pay for it. Think, hi, we're the federal, we're Uncle Sam and we have a blank checkbook. Whatever it takes to get us out of this, you guys do it. We'll figure out how to pay it for it. We'll figure out how to distribute it. Um, and lo, you know, that was, look, it was not a perfect process. It's a human endeavor. You're going to have mistakes and stuff, but it managed to create uh, not just a working vaccine, but in several of the cases, it looks like a very effective vaccine in less than a year, which is something that is near miraculous. So uh, for everyone involved, thank you. For everyone else who's, you know, uh, probably the odds are good, you're probably still waiting for a vaccine. That's okay. It's going to get to you. Uh, better days are ahead. And a very big reason for that is Operation Warp Speed. That's an excellent choice. Operation Warp Speed was, uh, I believe, mocked uh, at various times. Certainly the idea of having a vaccine before the end of the year, which Trump and Pence had been saying on the campaign trail, was uh, thought just to be political bluster. At least it was interpreted that way by the mainstream media, of course, because 
having a vaccine by election day, which we darn near had, uh, but certainly by the end of the year would mean that something actually went right and they don't like to report that. But no, I mean, uh, what happened here with the private and the public sector is absolutely amazing. And I heard one of the HHS officials recently saying, look, we've figured out this template now. We know how to get rid of this red tape. We know uh, what process is going to work. We can't necessarily guarantee that the results are going to always be the same, but we know how to advance the plot now in a much quicker way than we did before. And so hopefully, if we ever need to do this again, uh, whether it's with something like coronavirus or something that we've been working on for a very long time, uh, the process is just going to be quicker. Now, obviously, most health issues are not going to receive the amount of attention uh, and resources uh, that this will, and then just almost have everything kind of shoved off the front burner so it could be addressed. But the, the fact is it got done. And a lot of people were saying maybe sometime next year, possibly 2022, but no, there are people literally being inoculated right now, which so many people legitimately, not just politically biased, uh, but legitimately thought could never happen. It happened. And there's a lot of people who deserve a lot of credit for this. And so uh, they absolutely need to be uh, one of the winners here for 2020. And that would have been my first choice as well. But since we don't like to double up, Jim, I'm going to go with another big one. Because in addition to uh, coming up with a vaccine on very short notice, which is a monumental challenge, so is stability in the Middle East. Uh, and so the Abraham Accords are my choice uh, for 2020. Uh, I assume uh, these talks were begun well before 2020 in some cases. But, you know, this fall we had the, uh, the signing there at the White House involving Israel, the UAE, and Bahrain. Later, Sudan jumped on board. And I don't know if Morocco is technically part of the Abraham Accords or whether it was just this U.S. recognizes that they control this West Saharan territory and uh, they'll recognize Israel. But nonetheless, uh, that's four nations now, plus Egypt and Jordan, which already recognize Israel, uh, hoping to get the Saudis on board, which would be huge, and maybe some other Gulf states, all as a major buffer against Iran. And one of the ways of doing this was thinking outside of the box, because for administration after administration, everyone assumed that the only way this is going to happen is if you get the Israelis and Palestinians to agree first. We played the haughty clip of John Kerry saying, oh, that'll never happen. It has to start there. Well, it doesn't have to start there. And not only did they not start with the Palestinians, who have no interest in recognizing Israel's right to exist as of right now, uh, but they figured out what appeals to uh, different nations to make these agreements happen. And it's not that they're going to agree on religion or, or other ideology. It's going to be smart business ties, travel exchanges, uh, exchanging goods and services. Everybody likes to get rich and everybody likes innovation and they want to uh, be able to present that innovation as something for their people to buy. And so it's on a more pragmatic level, but I think it's the, the smart way to move forward at this point. And uh, kudos to people who got mocked as being in charge of the Middle East policy, Mike Pompeo, even Jared Kushner, uh, President Trump. And so, Jim, we'll see whether this holds. We'll see what happens in a Biden administration. We'll see if uh, the Palestinians or some other rogue actor try to, to mess this up. But uh, it's, a, it's an achievement on a scale we haven't seen in a very long time, if ever, uh, since the end of World War II and the creation of the Israeli state. Yeah, that's another excellent choice there, Greg. In a normal year, that would get a lot of attention. Peace exactly. in the Middle East would be a big deal if, uh, if you know, we didn't have all these other things going on. Well, let's talk about our sponsor today because uh, we want uh, tensions to be simmering in the Middle East, and it looks like they are, at least among certain actors there. But uh, we also want uh, you to be very comfortable 
as you're lounging around the house as you're waiting for this pandemic to end. Uh, and Tommy John is uh, definitely the way to go with that. Tommy John's end of year sales going on right now. So don't miss it in these last couple of days of 2020. Go to TommyJohn.com for what is its biggest sale of the year. TommyJohn.com, biggest savings of the year, but it's only until New Year's Eve. You know, when you start every morning in Tommy John underwear, you are that much more comfortable so that you can do everything better. You should trade out whatever cheap underwear was starting to slide down, starting to ride up last year. Trade it in for Tommy John and finally get the comfort that you deserve. With dozens of comfort innovations, once you've tried Tommy John underwear, you're never going back. That's why Tommy John doesn't have customers. They have fanatics. What kind of innovations? How about breathable, lightweight, moisture-wicking fabric with four times the stretch of competing brands so it moves with you? Tommy John underwear comes with a non-rolling waistband for the perfect fit. The legs never ride up, and each of Tommy John's 13 million pairs of underwear sold are covered by a no-wedgie guarantee. There's a lot of guarantees in life, but... Uh... <laughs> I don't know how many you can take to the bank, but I think you could take that one to the bank. Uh, Jim, I've had the chance to try out Tommy John products, whether it's the underwear, whether it's the t-shirts, whether it's the lounge pants, super, super comfortable. They've got this fabric called Micromodal. I don't know how they make it. I don't particularly care. Uh, it's just super, super comfortable, super soft to the touch. And uh, it's just great, great stuff. It's a great product. And there's no risk with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or it's free guarantee. So try Tommy John today. And if you don't love them, they're going to be free. So go to TommyJohn.com Martini right now. It's the biggest sale of the year. It's happening now. Tommy John's end of year sale. Go to TommyJohn.com slash Martini for the biggest savings of the year. Did I mention they're the biggest savings of the year? TommyJohn.com slash Martini. See their site for details. All right, Jim, we've gotten our good news out of the way. What's the, what's the worst idea of 2020? Kind of the inverse of what I considered the best idea, Operation Warp Speed, and that is the president, it really kind of one of the strange mysteries of the year. The president of the United States, who is a noted germaphobe uh, for a long time, did not like shaking hands because he thought it spread germs, was a good way to catch a cold. And a president who was known for vehemently denouncing China as on the campaign trail. We get a novel coronavirus that, is, that starts a pandemic coming over from China. And yet for much of the year, the president's rhetoric was, this isn't that bad, don't worry. It's going to go away one day like a miracle. Well, look, yes, you know, even the, the influenza from the pandemic of, of 1918, you know, all viruses eventually go away in the sense that either they run out of hosts uh, or they run out uh, that the, the enough people reach herd immunity, meaning that they either have the antibodies or they are vaccinated or the people who catch the virus die. That's the other way, you know, these, these things can resolve themselves. So yes, it will go away. As of this recording, it has not gone away and it probably won't go away for a while. Now, I, you can look at other pandemics we've seen over the last uh, couple of decades, the original SARS, MERS, Zika, H1N1, and it's understandable for that, that there's such a thing called normalcy bias, that if, if most days are normal, you expect the next day is going to be normal. And most of the time, that will be correct. If there, most days, there are no plane crashes. So, you know, if there were no plane crashes yesterday and no plane crashes today, you, you know, the safe bet would be that there will be no plane crashes tomorrow. And a lot of days, that will be the case. But every once in a while, that will not be the case. And, you know, unfortunately, there will be plane crashes, right? 
we've had a bunch of viral pandemics over the last two decades that have seemed kind of scary and have generated a lot of scary looking headlines, but then turned out to really have a really minimal impact on the lives of the average Americans. Zika was an issue down in Florida for a little while, and then eventually the virus dies out. It, it, you know, it was not realistic to expect that to be the course with this virus, particularly if you were listening to it. Um, it it's understandable it would take some time a while to recognize just what we were dealing with and just how bad it was. I've, I've talked on this podcast about watching the images of the weird kind of, I guess, disinfectant cannon that the Chinese were rolling through the streets of Wuhan and just seeing, it was like something out of a science fiction film and just kind of recognizing, okay, we're dealing with something strange here. We're dealing with something that is out of the ordinary. This is not just, oh, there's a bad flu season this year. I think this may well have been what cost the president re-election. I think this, you know, that he... That he did not always downplay it. He would sometimes say appropriate things and then he would kind of go off the cuff and insist that good days were coming and all that kind of stuff. And, and look, I think, you know, you can oppose certain steps to the lockdown. You can oppose certain apocalyptic rhetoric that, that certain people were using. Uh, you can be frustrated with uh, certain governors and mayors and you and I have, have criticized them on this podcast for a really long time. And I don't know if you can, it, it's tough to measure how much different presidential rhetoric would have changed the outcome of this, uh, of this pandemic. I don't, I, I can't put a number of deaths on this. I don't know if Trump had been saying, you got to wear the masks. Masks are really important. This is a very serious deal. It's way worse than the flu. Um, if he had done that from the beginning, I don't know. I, I, I'm not going to run around and tell you, oh, we would not have had 300,000 deaths and things would have been, you know, dramatically different. Might have been only a little different. Might have been 250,000 deaths. Might have been 270. But I do think there were a certain number of people who walked around who didn't want to believe that it was that bad because, you know, we don't like good, we don't like bad news. It's scary. We don't like to hear we got to change our behavior. We don't like to hear we've got to avoid crowds and stay six feet away from people and stop shaking hands and, uh, you know, like wear masks when we're going to the store. Like these, nobody wants to do all those things. Um, and I think a lot of people were inclined to not do those things, particularly early on. And it took a while for people to realize, oh, wait, no, this really is serious. And you probably came across a bunch of stories of people who had been insisting the whole thing was a hoax or the whole thing was nonsense or it was just the flu and who then succumbed to it. Um, I think the president did the country a disservice with this approach and this rhetoric. Now, the irony is, policy-wise, I don't know if a different president would have done that many different things. And Trump was on, it was on Operation Warp Speed, which I said was the best idea of this year, did happen on his watch. So I guess in these two, you see the very best of the president and the very worst of the president in this administration. Um, deeply frustrating and hopefully a teachable lesson for all of us uh, as we think about the possibility of facing future crises in, in years to come. Yeah, inconsistency in a situation like this is is not good. And it's interesting that I have the same idea, inconsistency, as a, as a response to COVID, but from a different perspective. Because, Jim, one of the things we heard as this pandemic uh, uh, ramped up uh, in February and certainly into the early to middle part of March was you got to trust the experts. Listen to everything the health officials are telling you. And in the beginning, uh, we had a lot of folks, uh, Fauci included, saying, ah, I don't think you're going to need masks. And part of it could have been because they were still learning about it. And part of it was because, as he admitted later, and others did too, they didn't want the supply of masks that was available at that time to dwindle to the point where the medical professionals who needed them couldn't get them. So that was that was kind of understandable. It, it's not a good way to start off when you're trying to build credibility, but but it, it, it at least made a little bit of sense. And then they were on to the mask uh, issue a little bit later. The one that is completely inexcusable happened a couple months later. 
because uh, we were told that, uh, you know, going to state capitals and protesting lockdown orders and all sorts of other things, you're going to kill people. You're standing next to people in these protests and the lives are going to be in danger. Uh, you got to still do takeout from the restaurants. You got to do all these things. But the second that the protests erupted following the death of George mm. Floyd in police custody, we got this massive open letter from, I believe, over a thousand, maybe thousands of healthcare professionals doing a 180 and deciding it was okay to congregate really close together in huge numbers if the cause was right. And so here's part of that open letter. It says a public health response to these demonstrations is also warranted, but this message must be wholly different from the response to white protesters resisting stay-at-home orders. Infectious disease and public health narratives adjacent to demonstrations against racism must be consciously anti-racist and infectious disease experts must be clear and consistent in prioritizing an anti-racist message. And then it goes on to give some uh, you know, tips for staying safe in these environments, but they're not you can't stay six feet apart in a massive protest. And so they say we can show that support uh, for these uh, protesters by facilitating safest protesting practices without detracting from demonstrators' ability to gather and demand change. This should not be confused with a permissive stance on all gatherings, particularly protests against stay-home orders. Those actions not only oppose public health interventions, but are also rooted in white nationalism and run contrary to respect for black lives. Protests against systemic racism, which fosters the disproportionate burden of COVID-19 on black communities and also perpetuates police violence, must be supported. Jim, this is like taking your credibility like a sheet of paper, crumpling it up, tossing it in the trash can, and lighting it on fire. There's no reason for anyone to believe a word you say when you uh, inject politics into this and pick and choose who has the First Amendment right to assemble and who doesn't. Amen, Greg. Uh, it's interesting. As I was contemplating my selections for these awards, um, a name we, I don't think either you or I have mentioned so far uh, that I would have expected by around mid-year would be coming up all the time, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who I started out the year, you know, not knowing that much about, but thinking pretty well of, liking him for a huge stretch of this year. And I still think he's generally a good doctor, a good man who is attempting to communicate things as best he can. But there have been a couple cases where he has not quite been what I've wanted him to be. He, in terms of like, you know, he has soft peddled his criticism of New York State and insisted that New York City did it terrific. Um, he did object to, or he did say that, you know, that the gatherings for George Floyd protests represented a potential threat of spreading the virus. But he didn't really scream it. Now, did he, Greg? <laughs> he didn't really shout it. And a couple times since then, uh, he's a, he, he has called for schools to be open and for bars to be closed. And I, I agree with that priority list. Um, I do also note, however, like just a couple of weeks ago, Joe Biden was saying he wanted schools to be closed for his first hundred days. And I haven't seen Anthony Fauci jump to the ramparts to say, no, Mr. President-elect, you're wrong. And all the governors who are closing the schools are wrong. I haven't seen him pounding on the door of Ralph Northam or here in Authenticity Woods or, uh, or any place like that. So I'm a little disappointed with Fauci on the second half of the year. For people wondering, hey, haven't you mentioned it? Well, that's, that's how I'm feeling about him these days. And I think the medical community who wants us to trust them have squandered some of that trust in part out of sheer, I don't know whether it was sheer appearing 
uh, on the wrong side of the woke arguments or, or what it was. But I think what you described there really was a turning point in the story of 2020. No, absolutely right. And uh, I, I think Fauci was uncomfortable with that. He didn't, uh, you know, go to the ramparts like a lot of other people trying to get on the woke bandwagon, but he didn't denounce it the way he did the other protests. And I think that that, that you got to you got to stay consistent on these things, regardless of your politics. And that did not happen. And I think when you talk about uh, people not knowing what to do with the masks and whether to follow the, the guidelines and whether it was all a show or whether not this this is one of those things that I think people decided uh I'm not sure that this is all that they're saying it is. And when you can't stay consistent, man, that's really damaging. Noble lies almost always end up backfiring yeah. sooner or later. And everybody, it's amazing how many people refuse to learn that lesson. All right, Jim, let's move on to uh, boldest tactic for 2020. Right. So if you think back to summer of 2015, Donald Trump descends the escalator at Trump Tower does his an opening press conference and probably the most uh, infamous sentence out of that uh, opening uh, speech was regarding Mexico and regarding illegal immigration. They're not sending their best. And from that was born the concept that Donald Trump was xenophobic, that Donald Trump was anti-Latino, that he hated Hispanics. He hated those uh, who come from Latin America and, and that, you know, at the heart, this, you know, if not white supremacist, then this anti-Latino mentality was at the, the heart of what animated him, what drove him. It was the, the spirit that uh, pushed forth his policies. And then running for re-election in 2020, Donald Trump improved his standing amongst all demographics, including Latinos and Hispanics. And the only one he did not improve amongst was white men. Uh, in a perfect irony of things. So why did that happen? Well, I, I want to focus on one aspect of it that I think is probably the most intriguing, and I think is the, you know, I would say is the boldest tactic was the Trump campaign rejected this idea. Not only did they reject the accusation that uh, Donald Trump was xenophobic and anti-Latino, they rejected that they couldn't appeal to these demographics. And I wrote about this a couple of times during the year that it, you know, the, the, the obvious example that people cite is the Cuban American community in Florida. And that was a, an important part of the story. Um, people think, ah, Cuban Americans, they always vote Republican. No, actually, no, they split 50 to 47 in favor of Romney against Barack Obama back in 2012. And was the argument was, okay, Cuban Americans are just not as Republican as they used to be. They're turning into uh, just another Democrat, you know, gradually Democratic leaning uh, demographic in that state. They went a little closer, a little, little more support for Trump back in uh, 2016. And then this year, there was this huge surge. And you know, if you're wondering why did Donald Trump improve his numbers from a 1% win to about a 3 or 4% win in 2020, well, he improved his numbers amongst Cuban Americans, but also amongst Venezuelan Americans, also amongst Honduran Americans, and also amongst Colombian Americans. And that did not happen by accident. That happened in part because of not just Spanish language advertising by the Trump campaign. The Trump campaign deliberately targeted these folks both through web ads and TV ads. And one of the little, lots of little details, like if you're targeting Colombian Americans, the Spanish language announcer they made sure had a Colombian accent. You know, those of us who don't speak Spanish, it may all kind of sound the same to us, but it matters in these communities. And when they focused upon U.S. policy towards Colombia and fighting socialism, look, Bernie Sanders running on socialism and lots of other Democrats saying they, you know, support socialism, that helped 
when you're trying to convince, you know, uh, people who either left socialist countries or their parents did or their great or their grandparents did, you know, they've been hearing the stories about autocrats taking power and how socialists promise the world and then you find yourself impoverished and having all your rights taken away. Uh, look, that resonates. That, that, that resonates deep in people's hearts. Uh, you know, when we were talking about uh, best political theater, you talked about the speaker at the Republican convention, you know, the, the Trump campaign, whatever else you want to think about them, they saw they had enormous opportunity here. And by and large, they capitalized it. And Florida is the big headline story. But you look at those border communities in Mexico, even that, you know, qualified with that. And I also think that the, 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 as much as uh, Democrats will insist they believe in the American dream and they're patriotic, et cetera, et cetera. Look, we look at a Democratic speech or a Democratic discussions. The subtext of a lot of it is America stinks. This is not the land of opportunity. We are racist. We are oppressive. We are, the rich people keep us down, uh, you know, this, that, and the other. Every, you know, litany of, of woe and oppression and all that stuff. The Republican message and the Trump message was, this is the land of opportunity. You can make, you can live your dream here. This is a great country. We are blessed to be here. We are blessed to be born here or we are blessed to be let in here legally. And that resonated. And that was one of the reasons Trump was able to improve in this demographic. And so for maximizing that opportunity, bravo Trump campaign. I think that is the boldest tactic of 2020. Now, I think that's a very smart point, Jim. I think you mentioned it a couple of days ago when you were talking about uh, the two ladies who won congressional seats out in uh, Southern California, uh, Korean-American women, uh, who are very much embodying that same message. And I think it's a message that really still resonates as much as uh, the media and, and a lot of Democrats try to cloud it up now and claim that only the government can keep you afloat giving people the belief that they can do it themselves and the government's job is to remove barriers, not to do it for them. It's really an appealing message. Nobody likes to have stuff handed to them where they can actually earn it and, and, and have a sense of achievement. It really makes a huge difference and it really played well. And hopefully everyone is learning that lesson uh, on both sides of the aisle. I mean, uh, obviously we want Republicans to keep winning, but if Democrats get the idea that creating opportunities for people rather than having the government just spoon feed them stuff. Uh, everybody wins. All right, Jim, let's go to uh, my choice here. And that is, it's kind of a replay of four years ago. I said four years ago, the boldest tactic was not having a confirmation process for Merrick Garland this year. I think it's the fact that there was a confirmation process for Amy Coney Barrett. Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, I think, September what 17th 18th somewhere in there and that was only about six weeks before election day and of course given what had happened in 2016 the media and the democrats were up in arms uh not only because they thought it was uh, a contradiction to what happened four years earlier but because they obviously didn't want trump to have the opportunity to name a replacement on the court for ruth bader ginsburg because it would obviously be someone far more conservative and so it was and the very night that ruth bader ginsburg died you had, I believe, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski for sure saying they thought it was too close to the election for this process to play out. And I think there were others saying they weren't sure because you had others on the record from, uh, from a little bit earlier. In fact, I think even Chuck Grass and Lindsey Graham had said, if it's that close, they're not necessarily sure they want to do that. So there's a lot of uncertainty in the Republican caucus about what to do. Mitch stopped sipping on his uh, bourbon or iced tea or whatever he had at that moment and said, 
keep your powder dry. Uh, he and Trump got on the same page right away. I think they realized that if you're going to do this, Barrett's probably the right one to do it. Everyone's expecting it anyway. She just went through the process. Uh, we can get this on, on the road pretty quickly. Uh, Lindsey Graham was ready to roll. Uh, and the next thing you know, uh, everything was on its way. Uh, by mid-October, you were having confirmation hearings. By three and a half to four weeks into October, uh, she was out of the committee and then approved quite quickly on the Senate floor with only Susan Collins uh, diverting from the rest of, of their party on the vote. Amy Coney Barrett is on the Supreme Court and uh, would have been very easy for uh, a lot of Republicans, particularly ones who were trailing, maybe Cory Gardner, Martha McSally, although I think their base would have been too happy to try and weasel out of it. But no, they realized that this was probably the best thing for them politically and it was the right thing to do because uh, he's still the president. They're still in charge of the Senate uh, until January. And so they had the time to do it. There have been confirmations done in less time than that over the years. And the next thing you know, Amy Coney Barrett's on the Supreme Court. Uh, but it took a little uh, shaking by the collars of some folks on this Republican side of the, of, of the Senate on Capitol Hill. And it got done. So good job. Boldest tactic. Uh, another excellent selection there, Greg. So, and maybe long term, one of the more consequential decisions of 2020. Yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of interesting things. I, I I really like what you had to say about the the different outreach from the Trump campaign. It's it's not what a lot of people expected, and the media, of course, largely ignored it. But I don't think you can ignore it when you look at the numbers. Uh, mm. uh, he improved vastly over his own performance in uh, in 2016, and over a lot of other Republicans who were not branded nearly as as hostile uh, uh, to women and minorities uh, as as previous Republican nominees. So. We will uh, keep going. We've got two more installments of this to go. Tomorrow, we'll be taking a look at the media, gym, and whew, their performance in 2020 was something else. So uh, buckle up. <laughs> we, we're, we're, there'll be a lot of warmth and good cheer in that edition. <laughs> a banner year for the fourth estate. Anyway, uh, Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Uh, thanks to Tommy John for sponsoring us today. And uh, also, please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. We're very, very grateful for those uh, five-star ratings and those kind reviews. Also, remember, you can get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Have a great day and join us Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.